For Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Acadia uh, National Park is both a national and a local treasure. Created by gifts and under the stewardship of the Department of Interior for nearly a century, Acadia has also seen extraordinary private support over the last 20 years through the nonprofit Friends of Acadia. In our program this morning, we'll talk with David McDonald, the new president of Friends of Acadia, and some others about the history of the organization and current programs, including how they're teaming up with park staff to engage a new generation of young friends by linking outdoor experience with new media and technology. So, welcome to David McDonald, president of Friends of Acadia. Glad you could be with us this morning, Thank David. Thank you, Ron. It's fun to be here. And welcoming back both Stephanie Clement of Friends of Acadia. Welcome to you, Stephanie. Thank you, Ron. And Adriana McLean, um, who is uh, with Acadia National Park. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Well, let's start um, uh, by asking uh, David a little bit about uh, his uh, uh, kind of background, and then we'll get you also to talk about your backgrounds. How did you come to the position um, at Friends of Acadia? Well, I'm one of the uh, lucky ones who have been able to spend most of my life living next door to Acadia National Mm -hmm. Park. I grew up on the island. My family moved up when I was just a kid. So Acadia National Park was a huge part of shaping who I am as a person. So Went away to school and then lived in southern Maine for a couple of years, but then was able to come back to the island to work for another nonprofit, Maine Coast Heritage Trust, focused on land conservation. And my first job there was working on land projects around Acadia. Um, So, again, from a personal angle, from a professional angle, Acadia has been a central theme. And then when this job came open a few months ago, uh, I jumped at the chance to join an organization that I always admired and had done so much for my community. Great. Stephanie, how about yourself? What, what's your background and what led you to uh, Friends of Acadia? Well, very similar to David, I just find myself to be very incredibly lucky um, to be here. And I grew up in Virginia, um, but my father's family was from Mount Desert Island from generations ago. So we used to come on vacation, which is a similar story I think you hear for a lot of people in the area. And um, I'd gone to uh, graduate school for natural resources planning, and, and gosh darn it, one of my friends from graduate school had been at Acadia doing summer research and said, no, there's a job open at Friends of Acadia I think you should think about. And I applied, and my goodness, I just can't believe my luck that I'm here. (laughs) Great. All right, Raina, you um, uh, came to Mount Desert Island um, at what age, and and then how did you get to your position with the park? 
Uh, well, I went to high school here in Maine uh, through the Maine School for Science and Math in northern Maine, and then I attended College of the Atlantic, uh, was a student there where I studied um, Strangely enough, math and art. Um, and now I've been with the National Park Service and the federal government traveling from states in the West uh, back to the East Coast for the last uh, 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I returned home to Maine in 2008 and brought with me my husband, and we have a little daughter now. So I feel really lucky to work in the national parks or some of the most beautiful places in the country, and it's great to come home to Acadia. Mm, great. Well, I think uh, many of our listeners will resonate with those stories of coming home to both Maine and, and the places that Acadia holds in in their um, lives and hearts. Um, perhaps a little bit of background on Friends of Acadia. Um, David, what's what's the, the thumbnail sketch of Friends sure. of Acadia? Sure. Well, we've been around about 26 years. We were founded in the mid-'80s by, um, probably not unlike WERU, by mm-hmm. a group of citizen volunteers who loved Acadia National Park and yet felt that it could be uh, a better park uh, with the benefit of citizen involvement um, from the earliest days I think the founders felt that getting out on the trails and with your tools and shovels and clippers and helping the park maintain its, you know, its recreational infrastructure in particular drove involvement. But so did the fact that speaking up for Acadia, raising awareness, uh, uh, building a constituency for the park that could come to its defense and its Mm -hmm. aid on, you know, in a time of need. And then finally, of course, um, financial resources, you know, from the earliest days, the Friends Group was raising money in smaller amounts then, but to help do projects that the park couldn't do. So that was the mid-80s. It started as all-volunteer. By the early 90s, we had staff and really uh, embarked on the first large project, which was the carriage road restoration. Um, It was uh, a very important historic resource and recreational resource in the park, these 45 miles of of carriage roads that that crisscross the park's uh, most beautiful parts. And Friends of Acadia partnered with the park to raise millions of dollars to both restore them and then put funds aside for their ongoing upkeep. So mm-hmm. that kind of put the organization on the map. Um, several years later, another campaign around trails um, and the Island Explorer bus system came later. Of course, the uh, public transportation, the uh, low emissions bus that now uh, has eased so much traffic congestion in the island. So over its history, looking for projects where a private organization and what can it can offer could benefit what the federal government can do. And that very close partnership has just continued through the years over, over many projects that I haven't mentioned. But those are that's the thumbnail. And that's a great um, sketch, too, because it's, it strikes me as is the origins of Acadia National Park were in those same um, um, kind of... Uh, inspiration to get out and do something and build a trail. And many of our um, early trails on Mount Desert Island were created by rusticators um, and people who said, this is a wonderful place. We ought to allow people to have some access to it. Let's build a trail. And then um, moving on from there. Yeah. Well, so so much of that uh, ethic was there before the park was here, of Mm. course, and and the local village improvement societies. uh, So there was that ethic and there was that private uh, initiative before the park mm. became a park in 1916 mm. um, and and that that blend is what makes it 
such a unique park today, yeah. even nationally, right. uh, as compared to other parks. Well, David, um, you, perhaps you could share some of your, I mean, it's, it sounds like it was a pretty natural thing for you to move from mm-hmm. Maine Coast Heritage Trust to Friends of Acadia, but you probably um, had some um, uh, kind of soul-searching about yeah. that process. Um, what was that like? What, what led you to take this challenge, and, and what did you see uh, as to, that might be your contribution to the organization? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. Um, the, you know, the opportunity to work more deeply in my home community. I mean, Maine Coast Heritage Trust, wonderful organization, statewide mission, and, and gave me tremendous uh, exposure to the issues up and down the coast. But, you know, we all feel particularly deep roots in our home communities. And that's what Acadia and the surrounding communities meant to me. So the opportunity to go a little deeper in my home community um, and yet be part of something big, the National Park Service, uh, and what that means to Americans, all o- people all over the world, mm. uh, is very inspiring. So uh, that was certainly an attraction. Um, and I feel like um, um, while someone from anywhere in the country or world would have done a terrific job, having someone who knows the local community, grew up there, and has the appreciation for what a unique park it is and the way it's interspersed with the surrounding communities um, was something I, I, I bring to the job. But um, I did not tell the search committee that I had the great new ideas that were going to, you know, transform this organization. There's so much good talent uh, and ideas already at Friends of Acadia on the board, on the staff, and certainly we're lucky to have at the park under Sheridan Steele's leadership and all the, the, the terrific people they have there. So, Again, my experience at, at MCHD and working in partnership with others. Um, I'm a big believer in that collaborative approach. And boy, we've got the opportunity between the board, the staff, the park, and all the other terrific nonprofits that are on Mount Desert. So that collaboration is, uh, is a theme I stressed in my interviews, and I was pleased that that resonated. Great. Uh, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about some of your um, work with Friends of Acadia. Um, and I think of uh, lots of community collaboration um, that you've been involved in. Tell us about some of those. Well, I've been very fortunate. I work on the program staff for Friends of Acadia. So technically oversee all of our conservation programs, um, many of which are in, involved in the communities. Things like um, I've been blessed to be a part of the Island Explorer from its very beginning thinking through, okay, how do we raise the money to make a bus system go? Where should it go? Uh, What would make it the most effective system possible? How will it grow? Um, Then also uh, been involved somewhat with the trail system. We have a network of village connector trails that are community trails, really, that connect into Acadia National Park with the goal in mind of reducing uh, vehicle traffic so that people have the opportunity to walk directly to the park. Um, Another thing that we were heavily involved in uh, was a group called MDI Tomorrow, which was actually led by our fearless leader here today, Ron. Um, And that was really an effort to think through a community vision for the future of Mount Desert Island and then also how do we group together to actually make that happen. So Friends of Acadia really, um, while our mission is related to Acadia National Park, it also is involved with the surrounding communities. So we do a number of programs that are park-focused, but then also those that are much more broadly community-minded. 
Mm. Share us a little bit w- more about um, the Island Explorer. What's the status of that now? Um, what are some of the, um, the hopes that, that you and others have for that system? Sure. The Island Explorer was founded or began service actually 14 years ago. And since that time, uh, over 4.3 million passengers have ridden. Um, and so it's been just a tremendous system that really the teenagers around the local communities figured out how to ride first mm-hmm. uh, because they all needed to get to work and they didn't have cars and they wanted to go visit their friends. And um, and over the years, as it's grown, uh, we realized it was a system that was originally set up uh, so that visitors could leave their cars at their hotel rooms and campgrounds and then um, get to where they wanted to go in the park and, and surrounding communities. But what we realized is we didn't really accommodate very well those visitors who were coming to the park or the or Mount Desert Island as day visitors. So the folks who are coming from Blue Hill, from Ellsworth, from Bangor. Um, so the next big step is to build the Acadia Gateway Center, which is a will be a park information center, welcome center, um, and also a place where people can leave their cars and ride the Island Explorer to the island for the day. Um, and it's going to be just a terrific opportunity, I think, for growth for the Island Explorer to encourage people from those surrounding communities who maybe were not willing to go to the park in the summertime because of traffic to have those folks come back. Um, And that right now, actually, there's a phase of the Island Explorer, the Gateway Center that's been built, and that's the maintenance hub for the Island Explorer buses themselves. Previously, they were maintained in the parking lot of the Trenton um, IGA, which was not at all a sustainable system. They were very kind to us to let us to have the buses there and fuel them over the summer. But really what was needed was a more permanent facility where there was a bus wash, a fueling station, offices for Down East Transportation, and so on. So we're very fortunate that that's been built, and we hope that we can continue to secure the funding that's needed to build the future phases of the center. Mm. And I understand that in the recent years, you've also had a, um, an Island Explorer bus on the Scudic Peninsula. Correct, well. yes. That was another area of expansion uh, that we wanted to be sure that that area of the park was served, especially with the um, the... Uh, Navy base when that was converted and became the Scudic Education and Research Center, um, it became an important facility to be sure that we served uh, with the Island Explorer. Right now, it's a route that is unto itself, but you can connect over from Mount Desert Island on the uh, Bar Harbor Ferry. And um, But in the future, ideally, we would be able to have greater connections over to Scudic from Mount Desert Island, either either adding more robust ferry service or in the future it would be wonderful if we could have bus service between those communities. Mm -hmm. And Adriana, you mentioned um, that uh, you spend some time over at the Scudic Peninsula. Tell us a little bit about your position in the park and how it relates to um, education programs like CERC. Well, I'm in a great position right now where I get to work with our partners like Friends of Acadia. Um, I work with Friends of Acadia. I work with our Scudic Education and Research Center Institute. And my position is partnership, outreach, and youth. Mm -hmm. So I get a a great mix of activities. Um, One of those things is to work with a Scudic Education and Research Center Institute staff, as well as the park staff uh, over at the Scudic Peninsula. Some of those projects going on right now is um, many listeners out there probably have children in the middle school who've had their students participate in our multi-day residential education program, the Scudic Education Adventure. And right now there's about 600 students scheduled for this fall to spend multi-day adventures over on the Scudic Peninsula learning about uh, intertidal ecology, forest ecology. Um, And right now they're actually using some of the new technology uh, from this summer's technology team that we're 
we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. So that's really exciting. Um, in addition, I work with our park staff as well to um, enhance our ability to keep things sustainable. So I help write grants and work with partners across Maine um, to help make our programs um, both partner and park supported. Mm. Um, I also work with outreach and um, helped hire about 41 youth in the park this summer. Mm. So I help with our youth engagement, um, engaging young people in exciting and rewarding careers in the park service. Mm. That's that's a great um, place, and I'm, I'm sure um, it's a relatively in the last 20 years, that's a new position, a new kind of position. It is a new position, and it's very exciting because it changes a lot. Uh, it's really engaging, and it's fun. It's very flexible and that I can move and change with um, emerging themes and trends and kind of keep things relevant and anchored in what's changing around us. Mm-hmm. So, David, as you look at um, uh, both what you have on staff and what you've got um, um, through the partnership with Acadia, what are some of the things that um, you're beginning to, to get a sense of? You've only been on the job for two, three months, two months? Four months. Four months. Four months. I began um, uh, the start of the summer. Yeah. What, what kind of potentials are emerging? We'll talk about youth engagement a little bit later, but what time, type of potentials are emerging as you begin to see the landscape yeah the best way to describe it i think is um how we work and and what we're working on uh, stephanie touched on a couple of the how we works it's the volunteer programs it's the kind of program development she does it's the fundraising and it's the advocacy so those are what we bring to the table in the partnership with the park and the partnership with the communities and those are all things we do well where we hope to apply those tools primarily in the coming years as I, as I see it, are what you mentioned, youth engagement and, and making sure that uh, the next generation is really engaged in the outdoors, engaged in the park, and engaged in our organization mm-hmm. for our future sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is what we call balanced use, and, it, and it, it also relates to sustainability and making sure that visitors to the park um, tread lightly, uh, understand the significance of the natural resources, and try to develop a more sustainable visitor use pattern. And when I say visitor, I mean myself, a local person, or someone who's here from out of state or out of the country. So really trying to make people more aware of the sensitive resources that are in the park and see if they can change their behavior Mm -hmm. and have a good experience too. That's the other side of it is is the visitor experience in the park. And some folks... Don't mind being on Ocean Drive with hundreds of people, but others want to take a quiet walk uh, in the woods and and not see another soul. And the wonderful thing about Acadia is you can have that range of experiences. So it's inherent in the mission of the Park Service. It's inherent in the mission of Friends of Acadia is finding that balance point. So a lot of our programs, be it the Island Explorer or the Village Connector Trails, fall under that effort to work toward a more sustainable way to enjoy the park. And then finally, both of those circle back to the resource protection. Again, that's sort of where we began Mm -hmm. uh, taking care of the trails and carriage roads. Um, There's a lot of natural resources in the park that that deserve uh, better protection, better research, better education. So um, bringing our tools to bear among those three pillars, really youth, balanced use, and resource protection um, with a broad brush Mm -hmm. is how I'm seeing the next you know, the next few months and the next few years. We're, um, yeah, go ahead. With, with that question of uh, balanced use, I suppose that you've gotten, you or the Park Service has gotten some feedback from users, visitors to the park about their experience. Yeah. And that's beginning to shape how you try to, to work. Can you tell us a that's little bit right. about that research? Well, the, the feedback is very positive. Um, Acadia 
given its relatively small size compared to parks out west, for example, and given its relatively high visitation, one of the most visited parks in the country because we're so close to the East Coast population centers, Acadia does a terrific job, and 97, 98% of visitors say, I enjoyed my stay. It met my expectations. And that's, I mean, that's incredible. That's off the chart. So it speaks to the job that Adriana and the park staff are doing in managing this, this resource that's there for everyone. Um, uh, f- local users of the park, we know from the data, have a, have a higher threshold in terms of what their experience should be like, and that's important. And the park, I think, is aware of that and is trying to manage the park so it meets the, the hopes and expectations of both first-time visitors, return visitors, people who live there. Um, but what the research shows is that there are a range of uh, expectations in terms of what is a quality visitor experience. And the park's management plan specifically um, says they're going to maintain that range of experiences. They don't want to take uh, the thousands of people that go to Cadillac and try to steer them over to the quieter part of the park. They want to maintain that range of experiences. And um, as Adriana said, it's it's always changing. And just in the last five years, the influx of cruise ship visitation has just changed the the pattern, particularly this time of year in the fall. You get these surges of thousands of folks coming into the park. Well, that that just wasn't that wasn't on the radar screen when the park last did its management plan. So things are changing and as Stephanie said, we hope that the Island Explorer bus system, the Acadia Gateway Center, uh, the Village Connector Trails and some of the new stuff we're going to be doing going forward, some of the ideas that the uh, youth technology team has come up with will all go toward achieving that right balance. Great. Well, I just want to remind listeners that you're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. Um, in the studio with us, we have David McDonald, uh, president of Friends of Acadia. You've just heard from him, along with Stephanie Clement um, with Friends of Acadia and Adriana McLean of Acadia National Park. Um, a little later on, we'll open up our phone lines. But first, we'll go to uh, Sheridan Steele. Sheridan is the superintendent of Acadia National Park, and he's joining us by phone. Welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Sheridan. Good morning, everybody. Hi, Ron. Great to have you with us. Um, first of all, um, tell us a little bit about your background um, in, in the in the Park Service. Um, when did you come to Acadia, and and how did you, how did you get there? What was the the route that you took? Well, as I say, it was all downhill because I <laughs> moved here from Colorado. So <laughs> uh, I've been at Acadia for nine years now, and. Um, before this, I was superintendent of Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park in Colorado, and uh, I worked at Rocky Mountain National Park and um, Fort Scott National Historic Site and Cuyahoga in Ohio. So I've been in the National Park Service 30 years now. Mm. It sounds like a, a great career with a varied um, kind of uh, background. As you came to Acadia, what were some of the things that you noticed both were, were special about Acadia and what were some of the challenges you saw when you first arrived? Well, every national park is special for its own reasons, and Acadia is certainly an extraordinary place, both because of the coastal and mountain resources here, um, but I think the uh, miles of hiking trail and carriage roads and um, other ways that people can easily get into the park and enjoy it uh, really make it uh, a great place. And um, as far as differences as what I saw when I came here, it's a relatively small national park, one of the five smallest national parks in the country. 
but it's also one of the 10 most visited national parks. So uh, that means a lot of people enjoy a relatively small place, and uh, that presents some of our challenges, which I think you've already been talking about. So. Mm. And I know that um, this notion of uh, the Park Service having the, the, the dual mission of both encouraging people to enjoy um, the resources of the park and protecting those resources, um, that's been part of the, the legacy of, of the, the Park Service um, since it was created. Um, and when you have a small piece of, of property, it must be a little more challenging. Well, I think that's true. And uh, that dual mission is a, is a terrific um statement of what we're all about and uh but it does present challenges because uh, i mean one way to totally preserve a place would be not to let anybody in just put a fence around it but of course that would defeat the purpose of the national park which is um to allow the americans to enjoy really what is their heritage so uh we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can provide for a quality visitor experience while still protecting the park. Mm. Sheridan, you have um, adopted a, a kind of a theme of your superintendency, I think. Um, um, you were particularly struck by um, Richard Louvre in his uh, book, uh, No Child Left Inside. Um, and you've really taken that to heart and, and made that something that you've tried to, to encourage um, youth to get outside. Um, tell us a little bit what, what inspired you about that book and, and why you've uh, made that part of your own personal mission. Well, when I was a child, my uh, my mother used to say, "Go outside and play, and don't come in until dinner time." And uh, we would uh, we would do that every day. We'd spend our extra time out in the woods or along the stream. And <clears throat> uh, I don't see that happening today. I see kids uh, spending most of their available time on uh, the new electronic medium that's out there and um, and interacting with other people that way. While I think there's certain advantages to that approach, I just get concerned about those same kids not making a connection with uh, the nature, with nature and the out of doors, which of course concerns me about what their relationship will be to national parks in the long term. Mm. So those those um, young people grow up to be voters, and if they haven't experienced a national park or don't have appreciation for the out-of-doors, they might not consider that so high on their list of priorities. Well, there's that, but there's also the fact that uh, I think more and more research is showing that kids who spend time outdoors are healthier, they're happier, they are, are better critical thinkers, they do better in math and science, all those things because... Nature has a way of, I think, uh, helping people develop um, sharp minds and interesting uh, uh, hobbies, so to speak. So I think there's a lot more to it than, than uh, support for the national parks. It really has to do with the health of our uh, youth and society, I think. Mm. So um, I know that you kind of convened a summit a few years ago to get people thinking and talking about this. Um, out of that summit came some ideas that you've pursued, and, and uh, Adriana is, is here to talk about a, a piece of that. Um, tell us about uh, what other people thought when you began to talk about this issue. Well, one of the um approaches I started with was that there there are a lot more than just land managers who would be interested in this topic. And so when I did that summit that you mentioned, I 
wanted to involve uh, teachers and uh, outdoor recreation industry-type folks, um, academia from universities, but also health professionals uh, who could see the obvious connections to um, healthy lifestyles and, uh, and really talk about common interests. And we had a lot of common interest. And so I think I was most pleased with that, that there's great or widespread recognition about this concern and about the need to really get youth engaged in the out of doors. Mm. I'm gonna, um, I know that you've got another engagement, so we'll let you go in just a minute. But uh, before we uh, hear more from Adriana, uh, perhaps you could uh, talk in general um, about your connection, uh, the park's connection with Friends of Acadia. Well, many national parks have friends organizations which have been established to help them uh, do things um, in collaboration with partners and with volunteers and with donors. But Friends of Acadia is clearly one of the best friends organizations in the United States, and we're very fortunate to have them uh, with us here at Acadia. And uh, it's an extremely important relationship because we need additional resources than the government can provide to make Acadia the great place that it is and to keep it that way. And so volunteers, donors, and partners like Friends of Acadia are extremely uh, valuable uh, in our efforts. And uh, I'm just feeling really fortunate that we have great folks like you have there in the uh, studio with you. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking time um, today and getting providing a little bit of introduction to um, the topic we'll take up next. Thanks to, for being with us, Sheridan. Okay, Ron. Thank you. Sheridan Steele is the superintendent of Acadia National Park. And um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns as we talk about Friends of Acadia and uh, more specifically how uh, both Friends of Acadia and Acadia National Park might be engaging tomorrow's citizens, um, young people. And in the studio with us, we have uh, David McDonald and Stephanie Clement, both Friends of Acadia, and Adriana McLean of Acadia National Park. Um, if you'd like to participate, if you've got questions for our guests or perhaps would like to relate your own experience, or your own insights, um, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's toll-free, 1-866-625-9378. Adriana, tell us a little bit about, um, um, you've taken um, some inspiration, I suppose, from Sheridan, and and tell us a little bit more about this summer and what happened with something called a youth technology team. Yeah, Ron, definitely uh, Sheridan has inspired me. Actually, when I was working in Texas at Padre Island National Seashore, I read an article from Maine about Sheridan's youth engagement effort and was really excited about being part of that because I feel like um, the next generation is the key to the future for the health of society and the health of parks in general. Um, and in partnership with Friends of Acadia, we've created a pretty exciting program, I think. Um, it's really fun for me to work with. Uh, it's called the Acadia Youth Technology Team, and we were in the second summer this year. Uh, this is first year was 2011. Um, this summer we had five members of the team, high school students from in Maine as well as surrounding communities, uh, as well as a college leader uh, from Bowdoin. Uh, Kevin Tabb was with us, and the team was with us for about 10 weeks, uh, looking at different ways to apply new kinds of media and technology to the landscape of Acadia. And the whole lens that the technology was put through was the idea that uh, people are already familiar with technology. There's this idea that the next generation are digital natives. Uh, they're born with an iPad in their hands. <laughs> um, so this generation 
generation is becoming increasingly disconnected from nature. You know, their lives are distracted. They're rich with so many activities. How do you get them outside to look for mushrooms in the fall and smell leaves in the air? How do you get people connected back to the places that make us whole? Uh, so the technology team was looking at ways to use existing technology that people were familiar with to plug them back into parks, to plug them back into nature. So all of the technological technology that we've been exploring has been intended uh, to bring people back to the park or enhance their experience further. Um, so some examples of that were a mobile iPad lab that's actually being tested right now at this Gudic Education Adventure. Uh, it's a series of iPad 2s uh, equipped with different kinds of apps to encourage kids to identify trees and flowers, to understand what's living in the depth of a tide pool, or to be able to navigate the night sky with an iPad at their side. Mm. Um, it actually makes the process of learning about nature fun and engaging and uses things kids are already familiar with. Uh, so we're excited about that. We're also going to be evaluating that process uh, to measure the success of technology in enhancing stewardship for mm-hmm. students. Um, so there's a couple other projects as Good. well. I'll come back to you, yeah. and I'll, I particularly want to know about some of the, the experiences of the team and what their experience was. But we do have a phone call. Um, they've called one 625 9378 Welcome to Talk of the Towns. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning. It's Jody in Harborside. There's a group called Friends of the Maine Woods that has been formed to support the gift of land that Roxanne Quimby wants to offer this, uh, the side Baxter uh, State Park for a national park. And I think it would be wonderful if the Friends of Acadia were to join with Roxanne Quimby, who has purchased a lot of the land, or at least some of the land within the boundaries, the private land uh, within the boundaries of Acadia's uh, territory, um, and support the idea of another national park in Maine. It would um, garner support from all the major environmental organizations, I'm sure, who would like to see more... um, more of Maine uh, understood as, as a beautiful natural resource. Um, could you comment on that? Great. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning. Uh, David, thoughts about um, the rest of Maine and, and how national parks might fit into that? And yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And um, in the past, Friends of Acadia's efforts have been focused on Acadia National Park and the surrounding communities. That's been the purview and the and the focus of our efforts. However, you know, we have been viewed as a resource, as has Sheridan and his staff, for what are the experiences in the communities mm-hmm. of having a national park in, in your backyard. And we have worked close with Roxanne Quimby on projects down here. And I know that she has encouraged some of the communities up north to be in touch with um, local, you know, municipalities, the friends group, um, what are the lessons learned? What are the pros and cons? What are the property tax implications? Uh, what is it like for businesses who, you know, are operating in association with the national park? What's the economic impact? Um, what industries have suffered, uh, you know, as a result of the park being here? So um, it's an inter- interesting suggestion and point whether we would sort of put our name on a, on a list of supporters of something that's happening up north. In the past, we haven't done that. I, I think it's a, something to think about. It's a good point, but we would definitely are already being used and considered a resource to help inform the conversation 
that's going on up there. And that's, you know, that's something I'm very, very supportive of. Stephanie, Adriana, feel free to add. I'd just like to add, too, that in in particular, we have tried to stress the economic values associated with Acadia National Park. And we annually provide that information to the main congressional delegation um, just as an indication of uh, what national parks can do as economic generators. Because I think that's one of the main things that needs to be discussed when you're looking at trying to uh, set aside lands for a national park in the North Woods. So um, our hope is just to continue to be a resource in those kinds of ways as well. Mm. And I know that there's a, um, a, a, a fellow or, or somebody working with Acadia now who's actually up in, in uh, the North Woods talking with people about what people perceive as public and what people perceive as private. So eventually that sounds like a topic for another radio show and we can have some conversation about that. Mm. But uh, this morning we're talking um, about uh, some of the youth engagement possibilities. Uh, if you've got a comment or a question, give us a call, 1-866-625-9378, and we'll take your comment or your experience. Adriana, you were about to tell us a little bit about some of the experiences of the young people who were actually involved either in 2011 or 2012. What was their, um, what was their um, uh, first impression when they said, oh, we're going to be asked to kind of design something that was using technology? I think they were surprised because the model that we're using with the students is a a youth-generated model where the youth come up with the ideas, they innovate, their ideas um, are explored and vetted as a team. They're given an opportunity to um, kind of figure out what it would take to build those projects. And then they're part of building those projects. So the first year was about brainstorming, innovating, getting to know the park, and creating a comprehensive plan about what are some of the potential ways that Acadia can integrate technology into existing program, um, what are some of the short-term, middle-term, and long-term goals for technology. And also part of the plan last year was identifying the places in the park where technology may not be appropriate. So if technology detracts from nature, impacts the resource, or impacts the visitor experience, that's not an appropriate way to use technology. So we're thinking about appropriate ways to use it. I think of, going to that point, I think of my most unfavorite experience in Acadia is walking along a trail. I'm listening to the birds. I'm looking at something and somebody's talking on a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. So that must, you know, that must be this, this, this notion of young people being uh, joined to the hip with technology. There must be a little bit of a, um, um, a struggle to, to give that technology up when you're out on the trail. Well, we see it a lot of times in ranger-led programs. We see visitors using iPads to take photographs on our photo mm-hmm. walk. Uh, we see kids who are part of the junior ranger program texting uh, on the top of Cadillac Mountain. So we're trying to figure out, you know, they're already comfortable with this medium. They're connected to their friends. They want to be part of a social atmosphere. How do you create that in a national park? How do you meet people where they are and enhance that experience more? Mm-hmm. And I think the technology team is successful because the students are out in nature exploring the park firsthand. Uh, one of their favorite aspects of the program is they're outside nearly every day of the week, doing things in the park, uh, looking at the resource, learning about the resource, and being together as a team. So there's this social aspect of working together and achieving. There's also this idea that their ideas and their innovations are being accepted by a federal agency as the way to go in the future. That's new and different. 
Um, you know, it's a kind of like the service learning model where you look at what students are solving and their problems, and you're expect, accepting those solutions and applying them to the landscape. Um, so we're excited about that because the things they come up with are ideas that I could never come up with on my own. So um, a couple of ex- examples? Yeah, one of those is this new idea of something called a knowledge base. Um, and it's basically a web-based application that would allow visitors to share what's called user-generated content. So their poems, their stories, their images photographs about their experience in the park together as a larger community. It's not like Facebook in that it's a forum to just update. It's more about an inspirational platform where people can share their love. So people could share historic photos from when they were a little kid coming to Acadia for the first time and then pictures about their experience from the park this past summer. And the idea is that you build a community of inspired and connected citizens who will help care for the park in the future. And we think that's really what technology can do is inspire others and create an atmosphere where people can share together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because the kids are really excited about this idea of inspiring others, that Acadia is one of those places you carry with you your whole life, that you remember no matter where you are in the country, Acadia is always with you. Uh, so how do you share that with other people? How do you inspire them to come and visit it for the first time or for the 10th time? Mm. So um, the young people um, brainstormed a little bit last year. So what was different about this year? What were they doing this year? This summer was really exciting because we almost treated them a little bit like a startup company, uh, Silicon Valley and Acadia, um, and a little bit like a think tank where they were innovating and building working prototypes and then mapping out a pathway for how things would be built in the future. Um, We didn't want them to spend their whole summer coding when certainly some of them could have. um, They were definitely able to code in HTML and Flash and Java. Um, But we wanted them to think about, you know, if you could map this out with a developer, what would it look like? What is your vision for technology in Acadia? That's the thing that I really need from them is their ideas and the way they think about technology is different than mine. Um, And it's exciting because it's leading edge um, and it's really innovative. And we should say that we, we tried to get th- them here on the radio. They're high school students, and they chose <laughs> to be engaged in high school, which is probably a good thing. But uh, um, do you remember any particular story about a particular individual that um, uh, that would help share the flavor of the summer's experience? Yeah, I have to say I the best part of my job is worth it, working with the tech team. Uh, they make me happy. They make me smile. They're amazing. Um, one fun anecdote was they were working in the office next to me this summer. And I heard them at 3.30 in the afternoon say, oh man, it's it's almost four o'clock. The day is ending. We're going to have to go home. And I think it was Audner, Sophia said, you know you love your job when you don't want to go home at the end of the day. They were so happy to be here every day and so happy to be together and inspired and energized by the work they were doing. They didn't want to leave. Um, and just seeing them out in nature, nature together, they produced a really cool video um, that felt as though you were with them every day. And we're going to put that up on the website with Friends of Acadia, so people can check that out at Mm -hmm. Mm friendsofacadia.org. That'll be available this winter as well. So Mm -hmm. it's just a neat opportunity to be part of um, the next generation. We'll list our phone numbers, and then we'll go to Stephanie. Uh, 1-866-625-9378. Perhaps you've got some questions or your own experience or your children's experience of using technology out of doors or in a Canadian National Park. Stephanie, what was your your reaction to what you saw happening over the last couple of summers? Well, I just think it's a wonderful program. And it's it, as Adriana said, it's very exciting to see them go from idea generation to the beginning of implementation, which will continue in future years. But the other ex- 
exciting thing that started this summer was the evaluation of both the idea of the technology implementation itself. So are the things that we're actually implementing leading to better visitor engagement and or engagement of youth in park uh, resources? But then the other aspect of it is is the evaluation of the kind of the youth concept, the by youth, for youth. Um, We're beginning to look at evaluating that as an overall concept of ways to bring in the next generation in terms of uh, park management. So, um, and I, I think they really appreciated being part of the evaluation process and getting that off the ground as well. We're definitely not set up with the final program of how we're actually going to um, evaluate each individual piece, but we're continuing that process with them, even though we've lost them to high school and some of them have gone off to college. But we'll have a meeting coming up in October where we'll gather everybody back together either via Skype or in person to um, really set up the program for next summer. So, mm. And David, you said um, earlier that uh, as you began to um, uh, work yourself into this position of, of uh, president of Friends of Acadia, you began to hear from some folks who at least were skeptical about uh, using technology and youth. They, that they're already using technology. What, for, was, what was that pushback about? For sure. And, um, I, you know, Part of me mm. shared that emphasis. I'm, mm-hmm. I've got two young kids, and my instinct is probably to protect them from that <laughs> technology as Good long luck. as I can. Good, Good luck. luck. I know. And, uh, but, but seeing and, – and yes, I had donors, uh, particularly um, you know, folks who were talking about their grandchildren and saying, you know, when, when they're here in Acadia, I want those things away. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want them out on the trail. I want them mm-hmm. shut off and, and left at home. And that's f- fair point. But when I did – spend a day with the team and I read the report, it was clear, as Adriana said, that the resource comes first, the park comes first. They were immersed in the park first and foremost and then, you know, thought, how can the technology really be put to good use? And as she said, when is it inappropriate and and not helpful? When is it going to cut the wrong way? So I think as you talk to people and particularly as you see the team in action and some of the results of their work, you realize it's it's not a realistic approach to try to put up the wall and say no technology. Prohibition doesn't work. Prohibition <laughs> is not going to work. It's not going to be sustainable. So engaging that uh, you know the users and really handing them the keys to the to the car and saying you design it, right. you you drive it, and it's it's a very powerful model. Um, I, I do want to say it's only one of the many programs we have that that are engaging youth in the park. Mm. Um, my you know my still my favorite day on the job was going out with the the trail crew, the the teens that we hire from the local high schools to help work alongside the park trail crew and and the work that they're doing, um, you know, just as youth have been doing in the parks for 100 years, building those incredible trails. Um, We also have programs for what we call Ridge Runners, youth who are out there talking to to users, helping educate them about uh, sustainable, you know, visitor practices, answering their questions. So, um, there's all sorts of activities for youth, and and adding the tech team to what we've been doing for years just seems like a very sound and forward-looking approach. Tell us a bit more about Ridge Runners. Um, sounds like a fascinating concept. Yeah. Again, this this was a um, uh, this came I think came after our trail crew. This was at the time we did our Acadia Trails Forever Fund uh, campaign. Uh, we recognized and we worked with the park staff to to recognize the fact that it's not just building the trail or endowing the maintenance of the trail. It's important to educate the public and the users about both the historic importance of the trails, what's um, uh, good etiquette in terms of 
lots of folks think they're being helpful by building a new cairn up on the mountaintop. Um, and so um, the Ridge Runners have both been able to help gather visitor feedback and data, but also educate them about the kinds of practices that are going to help ensure the park resources are maintained over time. So again, there's a crew of... It's, it's for college-age students generally, um, and they're joined by a fifth person who serves as more of a recreation technician who actually does backcountry recreation research uh, in conjunction with the resource management staff for the park. Mm. So we, annual, uh, we annually hire them, so if people are interested, they should just call the office and let us know. Right. And so they're kind of ambassadors and educators. Um, That's exactly and, right. um, it's sometimes helpful to have someone come along and say, "Can you use a hand? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Give you, give you, give a, a, a hiker um, a break of some sort." Adriana, mm-hmm. do you see crossover between the technology team and the Ridge Runners' um, use of technology to aid the visitor experience that Def- way? Definitely, yeah. I think the the recreation technicians, the Ridge Runners, and the tech team. Uh, we had a couple events this summer where they spent time with each other, and it was really a great opportunity to to see how. Their projects are connected. Um, some of the things that we can do with GPS and geolocation technology where, you know, you open something up and it tells you where you are um, can help visitors with orientation and hiking experience. Um, but it's also neat to see how the programs sequence into one another. Uh, the tech team targets high school students, and we tend to have college students um, and recent college graduates be in the Ridge Runner positions. Um, and it's neat to see how students can progress through those different career opportunities mm-hmm. um, and get a lot of experience and professional development and skill building that's going to launch them into a future career. Mm. Um, so it's exciting to get to see them interact with one another. It's a uh, wonderful program. I'll list our phone numbers one more time, uh, 1-866-625-9378, as we talk about Friends of Acadia and the ways in which Friends of Acadia and Acadia National Park are engaging uh, young people. 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. Adriana, you said that one of the things that you were um, in, um, hoping young people would help you with is when technology might not be appropriate. Did you Have you got some examples of what young people said about that? Definitely. I think um, in particular the iPad lab, um, looking at the application of iPads in the park, you don't want people to look at their screen um, when they're out hiking. You don't want them to focus on the technology itself or for the technology to overshadow the experience. Um, it's important that the technology enhance that experience, and if it's not, it's not a good place to do it. Um, luckily, we have or not so luckily, uh, we have some connectivity issues in the park. Um, so we're also looking at that through a comprehensive planning process to figure out, you know, where is wireless available, where is technology available. Um, we have some pretty abysmal cell phone service right now. Um, so a lot of times people are disconnected due to the geography of the island alone. But we want to plan for the future and understand, you know, what are the areas that can be an intuitive location for appropriate technology. Uh, so each one of the plans for the different projects shows what are the appropriate ways to use this technology? What are the less appropriate ways? Uh, for so example, if, so if, if, if yeah. I'm hiking, I will often bring a wildflower guide with me. Um, it's in my pack. I'm not looking at it while I'm hiking, but when I encounter a flower that I don't know, I pull that guidebook out. So you're saying technology can be useful in enhancing the hiking experience. 
Yeah, instead of, you know, I'm like you, I hike with about four different bird books, uh, wildflower guide and mushroom guide. And so instead of a 20-pound pack, I can bring an iPad equipped with several apps, um, not to say any specific ones, but some of them allow you to look for multiple different kinds of species and identify and key and tax them out. And that's a skill that we're losing in society. We want people to reconnect with the ability to parse things out in nature and understand how early uh, botanical specialists studied things. We have a long legacy of scientific in- inquiry and research in the park. Uh, we want people to continue to develop those skills. So technology can help enhance your ability to identify and understand nature more. Um, and that's what we're hoping it will do. Another good example is our time-lapse photography, which is using small portable time-lapse cameras on places like Cadillac Mountain uh, or to watch blooming cardinal flowers in the wild gardens of Acadia. We'll be able to use these time-lapse cameras to capture natural phenomena, compress it into a video format and share that with people. So people will get to witness and experience natural phenomena that they wouldn't catch during their normal visit. You know, for people who can't enjoy the fall foliage in Acadia, we can capture the change in the forest canopy. People can enjoy that later. For scientists and researchers, um, the timing of flowering, the timing of leaves is important. That's called phenology. And that helps us understand our changing climate. Great. We have another phone call. I'll list our phone numbers one more time, 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. We have a caller. Go ahead and give us your first name, if you would, and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment. Okay. Hi, this is Julia in Ellsworth. Thanks for this great program. Um, I have um, a niece and nephew who are um, three and six, and I'd like to take them um, on a hike in Acadia and was wondering... What would be a good hike for them? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Thanks so much for asking. I'm sure we've got some, some um, probably three different views of, of wh- where you should. David, you can start because you've got some young children. Where would you take um, some young children? The one, one that comes to mind for me is um, down at Ships Harbor. It's on the western side of the island. It's quiet. It's, it's an interpretive trail, um, and it brings you down to the ocean. Um, where I find my kids have just been able to engage in the park in a way. I mean, that's the wonderful thing, as Sheridan said about Acadia. It's got that seashore element to it. So uh, not knowing if you want the the stream or the mountaintop or the ocean, uh, when my kids were young, we spent a lot of time on the Ship Harbor Nature Trail over on the western side of the island. Andrena, what would your response be? Well, my little one is uh, 14 months. She's a year and a half. So I'm always looking for a place where I can let her run free um, and experience nature. So I love the Wild Gardens area and the Sierra Mott Nature Center. Um, you've got a large open field there, a couple short trails out to the Tarn, over a little rock bridge and back again. There's also the Jessup Trail, which is that boardwalk that goes through the forest. This time of year, it's amazing. There's a kind of a golden canopy of leaves above you. And you can actually loop out the Jessup Trail and around the Hemlock Fire Road. And that's really doable for a three-year-old. Um, it's nice and flat and level, very few things to trip on. And then they can kind of meander through the wild gardens and see what's going on in the wild gardens this time of year as animals get ready for the fall season and winter. So numbers one and two, and Stephanie, your nomination for a trail. Well, another one I would nominate is actually the carriage roads. And the one I think of in particular that might be good for wildlife watching is in between Witch Hole Pond and Eagle Lake. If you park at the Eagle Lake parking area and then walk towards Witch Hole Pond, it's about a mile back and forth on the carriage roads. It's flat, it's level, but you have good potential for seeing things like a beaver or wild turkey or maybe a deer. So um, those are the fun kind of wildlife experiences that keep kids coming back. 
Great. Well, thanks for your call this morning. I hope you g- we gave you some ideas. You did. Thank you. Okay. Um, we probably have time for one more short phone call, one 625 I guess I'll, I'll uh, c- uh, close by um, asking you for some of your own um, Acadia experiences and what some of the threats and challenges you see and, and some, some of the hopes you have. So as we begin to kind of close the close right, what are some of your favorite ex- Acadia experiences? Different than a trail, it's an experience. David, which? Well, um, our family often goes to the Ilaho unit uh, camping in the lean-tos that they have out there. And it's a more remote wilderness uh, part of the park. Maybe it appeals to me because it's off-island where I live. Um, but it's a wonderful reminder that the park has in Skudik and Ilaho these other districts mm-hmm. in addition to other offshore islands. And it just, for me, illustrates the range of experiences that are out there. And um, certainly the Blackwoods campground is wonderful, as is the seawall. But in Idaho, it's more of a wilderness camping experience. So are there some challenges that you see of, of maintaining that, that difference um, uh, as, as we look ahead? Absolutely. And, and even maintaining that uh, campground. I mean, again, one of the things that um, Stephanie in particular and I spend a lot of time on is funding for the park service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one might look at an Idaho unit and say, boy, if the budget's cut, we, we just can't afford to, to keep that kind of unit up because not many people go there. But um, to me, it's a very important part of the park experience and what mm-hmm. it has to offer in addition to the different kind of seabirds and shorebirds and ecology that are out there. Great. Adrena, what's your, your favorite park, park experience? Gosh, there's so many places in Acadia I love. It's hard to pick one. Um, but I'd say this time of year, I really like to hike. I know, um, especially on the west side for Beach Mountain. Uh, if you can make it up to the Beach Mountain Fire Tower and take a look at the foliage, you get beautiful panoramic views of the coast. You can see the outer islands and you can look at the foliage. Um, it's a really tranquil part of the island. It's less visited. It's quiet. It's away from the major major hubbub. And, uh, and hawks. Yeah, and hawks. Good raptor season. Uh, we've had a good wind lately. So, Stephanie, what's your favorite Acadia experience, if you can name one? Oh, I'd say it's those fresh, clean air moments, really, where you're just out on the top of a mountain somewhere and you're breathing in the deep air, especially when it's crispy this time of year and it's like oh, all is right in the world. Mm, great. Great. And as you um, uh, look ahead, um, uh, how can others uh, get involved? Mm-hmm. Friends of Acadia or Acadia National Park, what are some good ways for listeners to connect with these two great organizations? David? Well, there's many ways to preserve and protect Acadia National Park. There's, as we said, change your behavior. You know, think about the impact that your visit is having and, you know, use a connector trail or take the Island Explorer, try it out. Um, Speaking up for the park, Um, again, letting your elected officials know about the importance of keeping our parks up and the number of jobs and the ripple effect they have on the economy in these times. So being an advocate and speaking up, um, you know, going out and volunteering on the trails, it is a wonderful way to inspire folks. And, and you the, have a, a couple of cleanups every year, Stephanie, is that right? We do, and people can go out any Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday throughout the summer and fall season. They show up at 8.30 at park headquarters, and there are projects for them to do. Then the other upcoming volunteer project, uh, Take Pride in Acadia Day, the first Saturday in November, um, folks can call the office to sign up to help rake the carriage roads. Great, and for contact with some of your work, Adriana, how would they get in touch? Yeah, they can check out our website at mps.gov forward slash ACAD, and also check out the the Great Maine Outdoor Weekend this weekend. You can get out inside and enjoy national public lands across Maine uh, and enjoy nature. 
Great. Thanks to all of you for being with us this morning. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests, uh, David McDonald and Stephanie Clement, both of Friends of Acadia, and Sheridan Steele and Adriana McLean of Acadia National Park. Thanks of those uh, of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to our supporters at Maine Community Foundation. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from the...